Welcome to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy, the podcast that empowers you to transform life's challenges into opportunities for personal growth and healthier relationships. We're your hosts, Tim and Ruth Olson, licensed marriage and family therapists and trauma experts. As experienced therapists with backgrounds in addressing trauma and mental health disorders, we believe there is hope and there certainly is healing. We've spent our lives supporting people through the ups and downs, and we want to share these insights with you. Together, we'll unravel the layers of personal growth healing from trauma, and building healthy relationships. Each week, we'll bring you engaging conversations, expert insights, and practical strategies to help you heal from the past, foster healthy communication, and develop enduring love. This podcast is your guide to transforming adversity into triumph, healing wounds and past trauma, gaining wisdom and insight, and creating meaningful, fulfilling connections. So if you're here to heal, to better understand yourself or your relationships, you're in the right place. So sit back, get comfortable, bring your trauma and your drama, and let's start healing. Welcome Welcome to to Mr. and Mrs. Mrs. Therapy. Hey everyone, welcome back to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. We're so glad that you're here with us today. We've been in a series on anxiety, and specifically we're now working on how to manage and overcome that anxiety. So we're going off of Margaret Werenberg's book, which is 10 Best Ever Anxiety Management Techniques. So if you haven't already listened to the past episodes, I would really encourage you to go and listen to those first. So I want to do a little bit of a recap. In her book, Margaret breaks the symptoms of anxiety into three different clusters. The first one is distressing physical arousal. The second cluster is tension, stress, and dread. And cluster three is the mental anguish of rumination. And so in each of those, she gives methods to be able to combat the symptoms in that cluster. So last week, we went through cluster one, which was the distressing physical arousal symptoms. And the three methods that were given for that, method one was manage your body. And just a highlight from that one is to specifically look at eliminating cats, caffeine, alcohol, tobacco, or sugar. Method number two is to breathe. And we talked about box breathing and diaphragmatic breathing. And method number three was mindful awareness. So we talked about how to gain control over your body, being able to be mindfully aware and have the control to be able to switch from really noticing and being aware of what you're experiencing in your body and then switch over to what you notice and what you're aware of in the environment. Because when we've had anxiety in the past, When we notice our stomach feeling funny or a slight flutter of our heart or shortness of breath, even though that may not lead to an anxiety attack, we automatically become heightened and we escalate the situation. We feel like, oh my gosh, I'm having a panic attack, but maybe it was something totally different. But because those physical symptoms feel so similar to the panic attack you last had, by the way that we approach it and we look at it, what we're being aware of, And then you escalate your body, and then you end up having a panic attack. Those are the three methods that we talked about in the last episode. And today we're going to cover cluster two, which are the symptoms of feeling tension, stress, and dread. So these will be methods four, five, and six. But before we jump into today's episode, if you haven't already left us a review, we would love for you to take a minute and leave us a review and help others who also need the information in this podcast to be able to find it. And as you can tell, I'm still fighting off this cold, so forgive me if I sound a little different today. 
But let's go ahead and jump into today's episode. So entering into cluster two, one of the things to be aware of when you're struggling with anxiety is there tends to be a lot of tension and stress that you're experiencing. So it's not just the psychological stress in your mind, but it's also the physical stress or tension that you're going to feel and experience in your body. When you experience this high level of physical discomfort and tension, it causes you to then want to search around and try to identify what the reason is for what you're feeling. But a big problem with that is that when you're searching around for a problem right here and right now, that's not necessarily the originating cause of the anxiety. And so you could be searching fruitlessly, or you then could attach your negative, uncomfortable feelings to an inappropriate target. And then when you attach to this inappropriate target, then you're perpetuating more and more things as potential triggers to that feeling or sensation of anxiety. Also, one of the hard things is if you spend a lot of time and you waste a lot of time worrying about the wrong things, you're perpetuating this negative loop. And then on top of that, you're going to feel more exhausted and more hopeless as you focus more and more on the wrong thing. And you're not identifying or being able to solve or resolve the issue that you're struggling with. And a lot of times in order to really go after what might be the underlying cause, it's very important to be able to manage the physiological symptoms that you're getting, that upset stomach or that just general feeling of sense of panic and worry. Because once you address those, then your mind is more clear for you to really focus on what really may be the underlying cause here. What do I really need to attack, work at solving in order to get to a better spot? But if you're constantly stuck in just that symptom management and you don't know how to manage those symptoms, then you're just stacking levels of difficulty on top of it. And a part of it may be the stress and dread or worry about the future and what's going to be happening to you. All you can do is try to make a plan right now. But again, if you're really nervous or worried, your ability to really come up with a rational, reasonable plan that can actually solve your problem in the future is limited because you're operating out of your emotional centers, not out of your logical centers. So really hunkering down and learning how to manage those physiological symptoms can make it much easier for you to enact a plan and strategy for something that's a future event or something that you're worried about experiencing. And then once you come up with that plan, then that can help alleviate that underlying anxiety. So method four is don't listen when worry calls your name. So that anxiety is going to call you and it's gonna compel you to worry about something, even without a clear reasoning behind it. And then as you're worrying, it can get even deeper and cause you to have this physical sensation or feeling of dread. And what dread is, and a way to understand what's happening here, is it's an emotional manifestation of the physical tension that you're currently feeling. So the first thing, and this, and this may sound oversimplistic, but don't listen. You want to ignore the voice of worry and try to engage in a relaxing response. So instead of following that voice of worry, it's, wait, hold on, I'm going to take a second here, I'm going to do a deep breathing exercise. I'm going to notice my tense muscles. I'm going to release them. Anything to manage that feeling of tension and then just try to relax from that. So progressive muscle relaxation is one thing that you can do. And just an idea of how this goes is you're going to just kind of stop and you're going to do a body scan starting from the top of your head and just working downwards and noticing all the different parts of your body. And you don't have to go fast, but you're just going to kind of go slow and noticing, okay, how is my forehead? Okay, I notice I'm scrunching my forehead. Now I'm going to release that scrunching. Oh, I notice my ears are pinned up. I'm going to relax my ears. I can feel my shoulders up in my neck. Now I'm going to relax and release my shoulders until they're all the way down. I notice that I feel a sense of discomfort in my stomach or in my chest. I'm going to do some deep breathing exercises. Oh, I notice I'm actually flexing my stomach. I'm going to release that flex and all the way down to your toes. Oh, I notice I'm balling up my toes. I'm going to 
release and let go the tension in there. And so you're just going and you're doing this body check ever so slowly and noticing each part of your body and then releasing that tension as you go along. And then the breathing technique, we talked about this in the last episode. It's just going to be a box breathing technique. You're going to inhale to three, hold it for three, exhale down from three, and then hold that for three. And you're just going to keep doing that for a little bit. And then it works at helping to release and alleviate that tension. And then also something you can do when you're doing the muscle relaxation aspect of it is when you're releasing the tension, when you're noticing and you're letting go like the tension in your shoulders is a nice big breath when you release the tension there too. And it helps your body just to recognize, okay, this is the position I want to be in here. Yeah, those are great. What we do is then we use that ability to relax, to be able to counteract that voice of worry. Because this method, don't listen when worry calls your name, is this thought that a lot of people with anxiety has that is this feeling that there's something I need to worry about. And if we are told to worry now, there are so many things that we can worry about. Even though right now I'm not feeling any anxiety, I'm not necessarily worried about something. But if you told me to think about all the things that I could be worried about, I could probably go on and on with all the different worries. So there's always something that we can worry about. So when this feeling comes on and we feel like we're supposed to worry or we need to just worry about all the things in life, using that relaxation to then help you counteract that voice of worry. Because when you look at the world around us and you look at everyone's life individually, there's always something that can cause us worry. There's always something that we dread in the future or that is unknown and out of our control. So then when you combat that and you take that on and you say, I'm not going to worry. These relaxation cues can really help you where you're taking control of your physical cues and you're saying, nope, I'm going to be in control of my body. I'm going to relax myself, but also I'm going to be in control of my mind and I'm not going to allow myself to worry. So when you're experiencing the different things that kind of trigger that anxiety for you and it's almost like worries calling your name and saying worry now. It really is important for you to be able to separate yourself from that and make a conscious decision that you don't have to listen to that command. Because like we were just talking about, when we feel that command worry now, then we bring up all those things that we could be worried about versus saying, no, I'm not going to start worrying now. And the author gives an example where she talks about when one of her clients believe the doom and the dread that she's feeling must have a legitimate cause. And she began to, you know, worry and search for that. Being able to really separate out and realize, you know what, this may be a brain function. She says it may be this cause-seeking part of her brain triggered by changes in her physiology that made her feel that dread and in effect called out worry now. And so when she was able to recognize that, She suggested to that specific client that she just reminds herself about that brain function. And she told that client to say, it's just my anxious brain firing wrong. And for her, that began the cue to then start the relaxation, which would help her to calm her body and the physical arousal that anxiety brings that often trigger that radar or that sense of like searching for what do I need to worry about now? or that feeling of worry calling her name. So when you feel like worrying, recognizing that the more you worry, you're practicing this habit, and worrying is a habit. And if you don't challenge that on a regular basis, you're basically digging a deeper and deeper rut in the road for yourself that makes it so easy to just 
travel down this path over and over again. And whenever you do something, you're creating this neural network and pathway in your mind that's easier and easier to travel down. When you first travel down it, you're basically walking through the forest that doesn't have a path in it. But the more you walk down it, the more it turns into a path, then into a road, and then into a freeway. So when you have these anxious thoughts, we're trying to take this thing that has turned into a freeway in your mind and change it from a freeway just into a road, and then from a road into a path, and then into an unexplored forest. But that takes time and effort. You have to work at not letting your brain go down this path so frequently. Well, for sure. And I think that's really great to remember is that on the opposite end, every time you take a step, every time you fight this anxiety and you don't allow it to rule the day or control you, that is a victory because that begins the process of creating a new path. And so for people who feel like, well, this is just who I am. I just worry and I'm an anxious person. It doesn't have to be that way. And so don't have this all or nothing thinking. Really recognize that every time you combat this, it makes a difference. Method five is knowing, not showing anger. I think a lot of times people who have generalized anxiety disorder or struggle with other anxiety disorders oftentimes suppress their awareness of anger and can have a level of fear of anger due to its connection to anxiety. There's lots of times when I'm working with my clients and we're doing EMDR and we're processing through something and they're feeling very anxious and I can tell under the surface is simmering anger and just waiting a little bit more time and then all of a sudden it comes out and then my clients say, I'm so angry. I'm like, yeah, you should be. That situation, that's okay to be angry about. That's fair to look at that and not be happy about that situation. So anger is not something to be afraid of. If you feel it, if you experience it, that's an okay thing. But just like this method is talking about, we want to know, not show our anger. And something I tell my clients all the time is, I want you to say how you feel, not show how you feel. Because when you're showing how you feel, you have suppressed those feelings for too long. Those feelings are going to express in a more explosive way. Versus if you say what you're feeling, you're saying it early and often. So that feeling is not compelled to come out of you. But it's just a, hey, I'm a little bit upset about this. I'm not a fan of this. And then you're saying what you're feeling. So a lot of times we do have this fear of anger that is undetected and we don't even recognize. And part of that, I think, is because of this feeling of perfectionism, right? Or people-pleasing. Or the idea that anger is bad and you shouldn't express it. Oh, yeah. And I think being guilted or shamed for feeling anger. But then when we view anger in that way, that can cause anxiety, just like Tim was talking about. And so a while ago, we talked about the anger iceberg. It's like this big iceberg, and I don't know, only 12% is over the water that people can see. But the true damage comes from that massive iceberg that's under the water. And so under the water, you have to figure out, what am I really angry about? Right, Because anger is a secondary emotion. There's usually some disappointment or hurt or betrayal or sadness that you feel underneath the surface. So knowing that there's something under that anger, it doesn't have to be something that you're afraid of. But it really takes a little bit of digging to figure out, what am I really experiencing? The understanding, too, that when you suppress that anger, it actually enhances and prolongs the feeling or the sense of anxiety. So addressing it by knowing that you're feeling it, and then talking to people about situations that are making you angry is a part of the solution to helping to manage that underlying symptom of anxiety. 
emotional suppression as much as people want to do it because they think that negative feeling is going to just waft away after a period of time. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. You're just kicking the can down the road for another day to deal with. So future you then has to deal with more feelings of anxiety because present you is like, "Ah, I don't want to deal with that emotion right now. So with this thought of to know you're angry doesn't require you to show you're angry. What you want to do is you want to sit down the next time that you have anxiety and write as many answers as possible to the specific question. If I were angry, what might I be angry about? And you want to restrict your answers to single words or brief phrases. And it's important to kind of keep that hypothetical idea in there, like if I were angry, because it's not kind of locking you in to the idea that you are angry. It's just saying, if I were angry, what might I be angry about? And you don't have to necessarily keep that paper after, but it really is just to kind of help you see and have insight on the connection between anxiety and anger. So method number six is have a little fun. And I love this one because laughing really is a great way to overcome this feeling of stress and tension and dread, right? Just being able to be grateful and find the joy in the things around you. The problem for anxious clients is that they take life so seriously that they stop having fun in their lives and they stop experiencing life's humorous moments and they just pass over opportunities that could be really joyful or really funny and instead everything becomes a potential problem rather than a way to feel joy or delight. And this is something I tell my couples all the time. Having a relationship that's devoid of conflict doesn't make a good relationship. It makes a neutral relationship. You have to put good things into it in order to make it a good relationship. And same thing with your life. If you're just devoid of negative feelings, that doesn't make a good life. You have to have good feelings and experiences to make it feel good. But I think a lot of times people are just trying to shoot for neutral because they're so used to experiencing the bad. But when you're experiencing the good and the fun and the sillier and the enjoyable, that really enhances it. And that is a counteraction and challenges those feelings of anxiety or those other unpleasant feelings. I think of this even with parenting and being able to see something as joyful or viewing everything as a potential problem, right? Kids love to paint. They love to play Play-Doh. They love to use the moon sand. But all of that is messy. And all of that is a potential problem. And so I know even for myself, there's been times where I'm like, oh, I don't want to even bring out the paints because, you know, we have an 18-month-old that can walk around and grab everything and pull it down. And so sometimes I'll say no, which is okay to do, right, at times. But when you do that all the time and you don't even allow room for that kind of fun, and I'm not saying you have to paint and you have to play Play-Doh, but I'm using this as an example that, I've seen that even in myself where I'm like, they're excited and they're like, hey, I found this. I want to paint this. And that's an opportunity where they could have so much fun and I could go with that and sit down and have fun with them. Or I can look at and list out all the potential problems and miss that opportunity. And if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you may have heard me tell the story about how Ruth is a very funny person but that I had actively worked to suppress laughing at her almost as like a challenge. But then I had actually trained myself not to find her funny anymore. And one day when I realized that, I recognized this is not serving me or my marriage at all. I need to work back to where I was before where I found her funny. 
And as odd as it sounds, I had to force myself to find some things that she was saying funny for a certain period of time until I almost just unlocked this part of me where I was able to find her funny again and to enjoy her again. But I think the same idea applies to this situation. If you are a high anxiety person and you just don't have fun anymore, you may have to force yourself to express yourself and say things like you are having fun, even though you're not really feeling it right now. And then after a period of time of doing that, again, we're creating a new neural network pathway that you're going down, and that's going to allow you to start having fun after a while. But you're going to have to create a new rut in the road that you can put your wheel into, and that's going to be the thing that's going to help you to get there. But it's a habit that you've gotten into of not having fun, and you need to create a new habit of having fun. Habits aren't created in a day, they're created over a period of time. Right, I agree, and I think that that's one of those things where you probably have to go and force yourself to do something that you used to love to do, even though in your mind you're fighting it and you're like, it's not even going to be fun. And you're naming all the things, well, then I'm going to have to find childcare, or then I'm going to have to fight traffic. All these things that come up, you have to fight off and combat that thought that that's not even going to be fun. And just consistently put yourself in opportunities where you can have more fun. And it's kind of like what I said in the last one where every opportunity that you take to fight the anxiety, it is not wasted effort. It really, like Tim saying, is helping with these neuropathways. And even I think people who are anxious, you could even be worried like, is this a good idea? I don't know. I'm faking it. That's not good. People are going to know all this kind of stuff. One of the things to recognize is that All this stuff that you're really worried about, it's just inhibiting you from doing the correct thing and just trying it out for a while and then seeing what the benefits of that might be. So don't let worry get in the way of a good activity or trying to shift an unhealthy pattern of interaction. When I think about Tim's story of just starting off as like, oh, not laughing at me and then not finding me funny, we used to laugh all the time. I saw how that affected me. And I actually didn't put it on him. And I didn't think like, oh, this is what he's doing. But I started to kind of get insecure. And I remember I would say a joke or I would say something funny. And I'd be like, right, right. And then in the past, he would kind of give into that and laugh. But there was a big period of time where he wasn't. And so it just caused me to kind of work harder, which I don't know, but it probably irritated him more. Like, oh, man, she's trying so hard now. And then we got into kind of this cycle. But now... After he realized that and he shared that with me and he intentionally engages in every opportunity, not just for me to be funny, but he is hilarious. I have so much fun together. And it's so good for our kids to see us laughing and joking and having this kind of relationship together. And it's one of the things I love about our marriage, how much fun we have. So to sum up, cluster number two is tension, stress, and dread. And one of the methods that you can use in order to challenge cluster number two is don't listen when worry calls your name. So don't allow it to grab your attention and then work at managing the physical symptoms after that. The next method is knowing not showing anger. So identify that you're feeling angry. Don't let it make you behave in a certain way. And then being able to verbally express things that are making you angry. So saying that you're angry, not showing you're angry. And then method six is have a little fun. Just try to enjoy your life, even if it's something that has been trained out of you, working at retraining yourself back into that behavior of just being able to cut loose a little bit, have fun and enjoy yourself 
and not take everything so seriously. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. And remember, your mind is a powerful thing. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode and found it helpful. If so, would you take 30 seconds and share it with a friend? Also, we'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcast. It lights us up to know that this podcast is helping you. If you have any questions or a topic you'd like discussed in future episodes, visit our Facebook group. Just click the link in the description below. Although we are mental health providers, this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide diagnosis or treatment. If you are struggling with persistent mental health issues, chronic marital issues, or feeling hopeless or suicidal, you are not alone. Help is available. Please seek professional help or call the National Suicide Hotline at 988. Thank you again for joining us on Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. Remember, there's always hope and there's always help.